1: uh, politics, we are caring about race every bit as much as white supremacists care about race. We have to get to a place where skin color is no more interesting to us than eye color or hair color, right? And that that may seem a, a, a quixotic dream at this point, but it's clearly possible. We want to live in, in a circumstance where there's real abundance and and the abundance has been spread around. We wealthy people and we lucky people should understand the pragmatism of all that, if not just the actual ethics, right? You know, if, if you can't feel compassion for people who are not as lucky as you are, at least you could feel some you know, wise sense of self-preservation that you just, that you want to pay some kind of ransom to th- these disparities in luck, right? Because eventually the pitchforks are coming. So yeah, I don't know what the right level of equality is, but I just know we want we want all boats to continue to rise with each new tide. 50 years from now, if the future is going to be better than the present, we want it to be better for everybody.
0: If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business, and they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up upstream listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code Upstream. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. On today's episode of Upstream, our guest is Sam Harris, who needs no introduction to many podcast listeners. Sam, of course, is an author, podcaster, and public intellectual. He's known for having crucial conversations about consciousness, morality, and the pursuit of truth. In this episode, we cover Sam's most pressing concerns about populism, Twitter, Navigating group disparities, and we also talk about why Sam is hated by the left and the right. Without further ado, here's Sam. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So, yeah, the last time we spoke was Clubhouse, uh, twenty twenty, where we had you on the on the show. Then Uh, the world has changed a lot since then, and I'm I'm curious how you conceptualize your uh, intellectual projects today. The the big questions that you're you're asking, and I'll I'll take a stab at uh, characterizing. What they've been up up to this point, whereas I, I see you doing a few different things. One is you're really trying to understand kind of the the big fundamental questions of of the universe, of of the human mind, uh, of of ethics and morals. And you you're also trying to uh, you have a self uh, betterment streak. You know via the the meditation, the psychedelics. You're not just trying to understand. You're also trying to uh, live better um, yourself, and also show ways for other people to do that. And then I also see you as not being afraid or being interested in kind of Upleveling uh the conversation at large and not being afraid to expose kind of inconsistencies or harsh truths that whether it's was religious extremism the past couple of decades, whether it was on the Christian side or, or the, the Islam side. How would you edit my characterization of the big projects that you've undertaken or the or the through lines of the of the threads that tie your big projects together?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's really a one central question, which has two. Types of answers. The, the question is, just what does it mean to live a good life? You know, what does it take to live a good life? How can we live the best possible life? And we do this individually and collectively, right? So there, there are individual answers—the answers that you can apply to your your own, you know, way of being in the world, and your behavior, and your thinking, and your relationships, and your career, and you know, it's, it's everything, you, everything you can reach in your access to the world that uh amounts to an, a variable you can change and then there are the things that that we can only do together right the the coordination problems the cooperation problems that we must solve together and that no one no matter how successful and and well insulated from the vicissitudes of life can solve for himself or herself in isolation right i mean it's just, so and that, that goes to questions of, of, you know, larger questions of systems and incentives and how you build a good society and why societies fail. And, you know, what, you know, is there a version of democracy that's truly healthy and stable? And, you know, is capitalism the best way to organize an economy? And so th- these are all, these are much bigger questions that we all get to vote on in some sense, you know, if only voting by our neglect of these questions, but we can't solve these, we can't answer them in isolation. So I, I'm I continue to be impressed at how counterintuitive some of the answers are in both domains, and uh, how certain forms of of happiness and well-being really um, you know are totally divorceable from what's happening in the world, and and other forms just simply are not. And and we just have to be kind of clear-eyed as we move through our lives both separately and together and, and try to navigate here. I I view it all in the end. I view it as a, as a personal and collective navigation problem, you know, because this is where you, you bring in questions of ethics and morality and, you know, ultimately politics and law. The question we each have to ask moment by moment of ourselves and, and of, of others with whom we're, we're living in, in, uh, you know cooperation however fraught is what do we do next right what do we do right now what do we do next week what do we do next year in light of what we know or think we know about the nature of the world
0: and what what are the even more more granular questions or, or topics you're really wrestling with right now mid- 2023 in terms of what to do next or where we're going like wh- what are the areas you're really trying to make sense of or evolve your thinking on or
1: you know, anyone who's listened to my podcast knows I've been whinging about this for quite some time, but I've been quite worried for now years about a, a pervasive misinformation problem, disinformation problem online and and especially on social media. And I think AI is only going to compound that in the near term. Whether it helps us solve it ultimately is a, is an open question. Really, I mean, it was it probably preceded Trump, but, you know, with the election of Trump in 2016, I began to feel that we just our politics is so broken, and it's it's so broken on the basis of uh, our our respective siloing into echo chambers online that um, we really are, are struggling now and and generally failing to have a fact based discussion about anything of significance across party lines, right? So we we just can't converge on solutions because we can't converge on on even a state a basic statement about the nature of the problem and we've be, we've become mutually incomprehensible to one another. I mean you look at what other people are paying attention to who are outside of your bubble uh, and the things that they're most animated by and they just the, the life choices they seem to be making and the and the changes they seem to be urging on society and they look increasingly deranged. I mean we we're just we're, it's like we're galaxies that are you know you know Redshifted and are 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 you know speeding away from one another faster and faster, and we've we've built a a kind of digital multiverse for ourselves where we're just not we're not in the same same space you know, cognitively uh, and therefore emotionally on so many questions. And so if and if we can't talk about facts, if we, you know, fundamentally can't talk about facts, then we can't decide whether an election was run. Uh, You know, know, legally and and well, or whether it was just a total fraud, and we've we've just witnessed the end of our democracy. Right? Uh, We can't decide whether there's a global pandemic, what its origins are, how big it is, what how we should respond to it, and we're left with this kind of piecemeal response to changes as they as they're imposed on us, and it's just it just becomes one long emergency. That we, we we can't respond to well, so uh, so I'm very worried about our the informa- the information tools we've built, the the style of of conversation we're having and failing to have with one another. Um, as you probably know, I I got off Twitter some months ago, and and so personally, that was a you know it was only a big decision in retrospect. Like in the moment of making it, it was it, 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 you know, I really gave it only like five seconds thought. It just, I I reached some kind of tipping point in myself. I mean, I had obviously been thinking about it in the background for a while, but I just, at a certain point, it was just like, okay, this is is now about about as simple as taking my hand off a hot stove, right? This is just why, what is obviously degrading my quality of life in almost every respect. Why do this another second longer? And so I, you know, I I just uh, yanked it. But, um, you know, in retrospect, it was it was such an enormous change in my life, day to day, hour by hour, I mean, even minute by minute. Given how I was using the platform, uh, and I really don't count myself among the most addicted, you know, pathological users of Twitter. I really, I think, I only tweeted on average once a day, and what what that meant in practice was me tweeting like three times one day, and then, you know, and having not not tweeting anything for several days, right? So I was not. You know, an Elon Musk-like character on Twitter, um, or anything like it. But when I look back on it, you know, it was one of the worst things I did with my time and attention you know, over the last decade. Almost everything that is bad that has happened to me, professionally and personally, in the last decade, was the result of what I was doing on on Twitter, right? And and what what I what I was seeing on Twitter that I felt that, that I needed to respond to because it was being signal boosted in that context. And, you know, I, I, I'm you know, perfectly happy to imagine that my experience on Twitter is, was by no means standard, right? I'm touching hot button issues and I'm getting lots of pushback and I'm seeing the, the worst in many people. And, I'm, you know, many of these issues I'm touching are, are explicitly political and I, I don't align with the left or the right. So I'm getting pain from both the left and the right. So it's not not the standard use case, perhaps, but I see many, many people whose lives are, are, you know, recognizably deranged by Twitter, and they seem to think it's a professional necessity or a personal, uh, you know, point of of um, integrity that they stay on the platform and just bang it out, you know, every day with faceless strangers who who uh, don't wish them well.
0: Scott Alexander from Slate Star Codex had a post a few years ago called uh, "Mistake Theory versus Conflict Theory." where he says uh, that mistake theorists are people for whom they believe that if they just had the right information or the same information, they would uh, they would come to terms. And so the quest for a mistake theorist is how do you up-level the conversation, the tone of the conversation, the subs- so that people can, you know, Tim Urban's new book is, is along these lines. Uh, and a mistake theorist believes in classical liberalism and free, mar- free speech and marketplace of ideas, et cetera. Whereas a conflict theorist says Hey, actually, there's some fundamental conflicts in society that can't be resolved. And the more you talk about them, the more you amplify those those conflicts. And so we have to kind of create clever myths to uh, to distract people from that conflict or, you know, not not bring up that conflict in the first place. And or I still take you as a more on the mistake there is side, you've been a big, um, you know, proponent of the marketplace of ideas or free speech. But perhaps, some uh, you know, you wrote a book about how one should never, you know, should, should rarely ever lie. We can get away with a lot more not lying or truth telling than we think we can, and I still believe you to somewhat believe that, but or mostly believe that all, all that stuff. But maybe perhaps a bit tempered by the last decade of uh, of, of of social media. Uh, would you edit anything to that characterization?
1: Well, yeah, no, I definitely would say I'm I'm a mistake theorist mostly to take that framing, but I acknowledge that there are. But there are people who are not really willing to play that game right so the people who are who are almost by definition outside the conversation given their dogmatic attachments and and just their their style of approaching any issue they're not they're, you know they're bad faith actors who are not actually trying to reason on the basis of of better arguments and better evidence they're just trying to win and the, and they're just, um, so yeah, so you ha- you need the, the the table stakes for m- mistake theory to be true is to have good faith actors who are actually open to dialogue, not just pretending to be open to dialogue. Right? And and so it's when you recognize that you're not in that situation and can't fight your way to- toward that situation from where you're, you're currently standing with the people you're you're trying to communicate with, well then you have to you have to adopt the other theory. But it's it's situational. But the thing that I worry about with these tools, again, you know, social media being the most egregious example, but perhaps not the only one, is that even the, the best intentioned mistake theoretic sort of people uh, are getting uh, driven, you know, fairly insane at least ha- having their capacity for communication degraded. By the incentives on these on these platforms, and by their just 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 their their architecture, just how they you know use them, the brevity of a of a tweet, the the retweet, uh, the effects of a retweet, the fact that everyone is talking to their own audience and and only seeming to talk to the person they're talking to, the fact that it's very difficult for people to 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 keep track of who they're engaging with, and to Understand or care about the implications of signal boosting people who are bad faith actors. Again, the, the most egregious example of this now is Elon. I mean, Elon is signal boosting QAnon lunatics and Pizzagate lunatics and anti-Semites, and I mean, just he's engaging with these people. And so, you know, do I, does he know what he's doing? I, I don't know. I mean, he's a very busy guy, right? He he should be too busy to be doing any of this, really. But he seems to have a lot of time for Twitter. But he's not taking the time to. To see who he's lending the, the gale force winds of his reputation to, uh, and he's not seeing how much it's filling their sails. Or if he is, he doesn't care, right? So that I mean, those are two different interpretations of, you know, of his character at the moment. They're both um, depressing, right? I mean, I guess the second is worse, but they're both dysfunctional. They're both uh, creating manifest harm on the platform and I would argue in the world he should get his shit together, uh, whatever, whatever which, uh, which one of those is true, so.
0: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody. I wanna recommend a couple other shows that we also run. One is Moment of Zen, which I co-host with Dan Romero and Antonio Garcia Martinez. We talk about everything from tech to history, philosophy. We've also featured Mark Andreessen and Balaji on those podcasts, so I recommend you checking them out. My other show is Cognitive Revolution, It's an AI show that I co-host with Nathan LeBenz. I recommend listening if you want to stay up to date with all things AI. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention Upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to $5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolved Bank and Trust members, FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard, and the time it takes from founders can be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire prevets top notch marketers across a dozen roles, whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy. It's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you want to hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer hire is offering upstream listeners a $1000 credit for first time customers. Go to marketerhire.com/upstream and use code upstream to get your $1000 credit.
1: You know, it's not just improving the the signal of of bad actors, it's spreading their lies, it's spreading their conspiracy theories. It's it's uh, you know, it's just it's lending his reputation to, you know, fairly crazy and divisive ideas, right? So that, that's just not good. And in the clearness of of consideration, he wouldn't want to be doing that, right? Let's just give him that benefit of the doubt that he doesn't want to spend, he, he doesn't want to share uh, divisive conspiracy theories. He doesn't want to uh, get people harassed out in the real world. You know, He, does, he doesn't want people to get doxxed and get inundated with death threats and like, well that but that is the effect of how he's tweeting so uh, there's not there, there's so either it's a problem with him or it's a problem with the platform or both or it's a problem with all of us g- g- engaging these digital tools in, in a way that our genes have not uh, not prepared us for you know so you know we're we're the cousins of chimpanzees armed with lots of tools and some of the tools are leveraging aspects of our psychology that don't seem altogether healthy and the thing that, that that made me convinced that I should get off Twitter was not so much all of the unpleasant stuff that was coming back at me. It was my, my near certainty that seeing all that unpleasant stuff was, was distorting my picture of other human beings. But human beings were appearing worse to me than I, than I think in fact they are. And yet I couldn't, I couldn't correct for the distortion by, by merely just conceptually understanding that as a fact, right? Like I knew, okay, I knew, I've knew i met this person. I've had dinner with this person. This person now appears to me to be a psychopath on Twitter. But what I was left with was just more and more the feeling that this person was a fucking psychopath, right? And and I didn't want to live with that day to day, right? And it's not it's not just one person. It's just it's lots of people and, and obviously lots of strangers. And there's just not that many psychopaths in the world. And yet my own life was be- becoming... A kind of bug light for psychopaths or seeming psychopaths, because of what I was seeing on Twitter.
0: Continuing to set the, set the table here, my take is that you're, you know, critiqued by the left because you, it, it, you know, you disagree with some of the core tenets of increasing part of the left, which is you believe in free speech, you believe in free markets, you believe in merit to, to some degree at least, and you also, you know, you. I remember June 2020 on, um, you know, the, the protest around George Floyd you had a solo episode, you were one of the only people at the time saying this, like, hey, I've, I've looked at the stats and around sort of police brutality or, or crime. And th- they're not what the, the media is ma- making it seem like we need to be more more rational here, we need to be more cogent. And that to many leftists is sort of an ideological commitment that they have, which is sort of the the oppression on, on, on this specific axis. And and my takeaway, your critique by the right is because you look at, at at the abomination that is Trump, at the people around him, uh, at at the corruption, the election denial, and you say, "Hey, like this is this is not okay. This is absolutely not okay. This is this is perhaps even existential." I remember in a previous conversation you, I, and Antonio Garcia Martinez, and I believe Mark Andreessen had, we we're talking about religion, and Antonio was te- was saying, "Hey, it was some version of like, t- don't take the beliefs, you know, take religion seriously, but not literally." But then we, we, I think you had a very fair response, which is, "This is what they're literally saying. Like, look what they're doing, what they're saying. Look at what they're doing." Like what you, Antonio, think is religion is not what most people think is religion. And so I, I don't want to do the same thing here when I talk about the right. So what I want to do is I want to fast forward to a post-Trump era. Maybe that's 2024. Maybe that's 2028. But at some point, Trump will be expunged from the, from the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, there, there will be less election denialism, et cetera. And I, I would posit that there there is actually a, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm a conflict theorist, but there's a fundamental conflict uh, between the left and the right. You know uh, uh chris caldwell wrote this book called the age of entitlement and his his claim is that there we have two irreconcilable constitutions the original constitution and and civil rights law and and with those the reason why they're irreconcilable is because one is about individual rights and one is about group rights and individual rights with freedom of association and group rights which is special privileges for groups that have been marginalized are directly in in conflict w- with each other the left has adopted the the group rights category the right is adopted the individual one there's also a broader idea which is the the right is kind of advocating for a certain a set of cultural norms that used to satisfy kind of a majority of the of the country the majority is getting smaller and smaller um about whether it's uh you know which we should teach our kids about gender or or uh you know race or uh, marriage or a certain set of cultural norms and and I see the left is optimizing for uh, the marginalized of society the, the fr- how do we make life better for them the, the, you know and it's kind of the fringes uh, and, and the right says hey that sacrifices majority cohesion et etc so I feel like these are fundamental conflicts that have to be resolved one way or the other and and that's why there's a fundamental conflict that's why the conversation is so tainted. Would you quibble with with my characterization there, or do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, well, I haven't read Caldwell's book, but um, I think that's an interesting way to think about it. it it's, uh, I mean, the way I have been thinking about it is that it's obviously ethically and politically important and valid to to acknowledge the our history, our you know, our very dark history of treating certain groups badly, right? So you know, there's just no um, and, and you know, race is the the biggest variable perhaps in an american context but it's not just race and um you know it's religion it's uh, sex, sexual sexuality and uh, gender and and um, sexual orientation and so it's so, yeah so like it's not that the ra- the the explosion of racial grievance after george floyd or the the overreach of, or what many of us consider the the overreach of the the Me Too movement, you know, when it in, in, when it first uh, came on the scene, it's not that those are fundamentally surprising, right? Like, the, like we get, you know, anyone who has criticized you know Black Lives Matter and and Me Too, at any level, even just at the margins, understands the history here and and the validity of of a backward looking. Uh, criticism of you know american political history right so but then the question is what is true now and what should we do now right i mean what you know what is true about race in america and to what degree are the ongoing inequalities that are that are discernible across ra- you know racial groups a matter of active racism producing them you know, it's like if we if we could wave a magic wand today and get rid of all the racists in America uh, and all the so-called systemic racism, right? All of the all of the policies that that, while perhaps not at all not enforced by any conscious racist, are in effect racist in, in their application, right? And may, may have been originally racist in their conception, depending on the policy. If we got rid of both of those things what would happen, right? How how many murders would there be in Chicago this weekend if there were no more racists and no more racist policies?
0: Probably the same amount.
1: Yeah. I mean so my, my assumption is we, we would have the same amount, right? So so if if you share that assumption, and I uh, you know, and I could certainly argue for that assumption, then you have to admit that, okay, well, whatever the problem of the extant problem of racism is, you know, both, you know, psychological and systemic, solving it is not the answer to what's happening in chicago right uh, and it's probably not the answer to many other things we're right to worry about right so what are those answers and how do we, you know how do we address these real problems that are getting people killed and and enshrining various disparities in wealth and health and educational outcomes across generations right how do we solve the those basic problems it's so it is a totally rational position to say for instance that we absolutely needed it, the Civil Rights Act, and we needed affirmative, affirmative action you know, 30, 40 years ago, but now it's actually counterproductive. right? Like I, you, you could argue for that change. In, it's like there was a time for affirmative action, and that time has elapsed given the nature of society. Now, given that you need an explicitly racist policy selecting against Asians at Harvard in order to practice affirmative action for African Americans, this is becoming untenable and, and and producing its own toxic effects and we should figure out another solution. And there are, there are other solutions to be, you could, you could use uh, economics as, as your, your variable, right? So you could say, well, we're not going to dumb down our standards for anyone. Uh, the standards are the standards, but we're going to proactively look for people who are below the poverty line who meet those standards and at every, you know, every decile above that. And, and we're just that so you, you know if if you don't if your family has never made a lot of money you will have an advantage regardless of the color of your skin or you know as long as you're passing these tests or or you know whatever the criteria are and if we did that we would as if by magic also solve a lot of the the inequality, the, the, the very inequality problem that that people are worried about in supporting affirmative action i mean that you're disproportionately going to be getting people of color if you select for or poorer applicants, etc. So, but but that would be one way of doing it that wouldn't pose the same problems of of you know which I which I view as just indissoluble and I mean just just on its face unethical and it'll never become ethical. Which is in practicing affirmative action and in and in you know following the the left's identitarian uh, politics we are caring about race every bit as much as white supremacists care about race. I mean, the the, the logical response to black and brown identity politics is white identity politics, you know, and white uh, white identity politics is the most odious thing we, you know, we have on the, on the political landscape, right? Why would we want to give any energy to that? But it makes total sense in light of every other identity politics. So it's a war of tribes, right? So my view is that we have to get to a place where skin color is no more interesting to us than eye color or hair color, right? And that that may seem a, a quixotic dream at this point, but it's clearly possible. I mean, many of us have accomplished that in our personal lives anyway, right? If you, if you don't care about people's race, it, skin becomes like hair color, right? And And so the question is, how do we get to a world where that is our our basic attitude with respect to these sorts of variables like you know again no one has thought to ask how many blondes got into harvard this year right and if we found that the number of blondes did not perfectly match the the proportion of blondes in the general population no one would allege that there's been a campaign against blondes right and there's this in, you know this sinister animus against blondes that that uh, is you know we've just now statistically unveiled right and who who do we fire right uh, and what what bureaucrats do we hire to make sure this doesn't happen next year? Right, all of that would be such an an awful capitulation to to a to an ethical hallucination, right? I mean, it's just it would be insane to manufacture that concern and then to do something on the basis of it, and yet that's where we're stuck with skin color, and that's where we're, we're stuck with you know, with you know religion and a few other variables. And so it's, it's, uh, although, you know, race is obviously the, the biggest in America.
0: I mean, the fact, the reality on the ground is that there's a department in almost every major company, uh, you know, or, or many major companies in America that their sole goal, the DNI department is, or the main goal is to equalize group outcome is to have equal representation in their, in their, in their organization, whether it's a corporation or, uh, you know, political or, or government organization or, um and. What I think to steal what they would say is, "Hey, we'll stop focusing on race once we're equal. Once there's equal group representation of CEOs or product managers or investors or whatever it is. And if we, if it was 20 years ago, we could have a more first principles have, hey, you know, why uh, we wouldn't do it for blondes? Why would we do it for, for on race? But these departments exist. This in, these institutions exist. And now I feel like either something's going to happen. One is that's going. To, people are going to continue to try to keep doing that." or you need to have a defense of inequality effectively. You need to have a reason or for, this is the Abraham Kendi, right? Every disparity is is evidence of discrimination. So you need a defense of why disparities exist. And some some people try, you know, Thomas Sowell has the culture uh, reasons or historical reasons that he's written across his 30 books, you know. Charles Murray wrote a book last year, I think kind of doubling down on sort of the the biology um, or or the IQ group group differences on on average. And I think the reason why he he did it is because he said, hey, without this sort of narrative, there's no justification to disparity and thus is discrimination. And thus we have all these problems that we've been having. And so I'm curious how you think about that conundrum of needing a uh, argument that um, explains the disparities
1: Yeah, well, I'm agnostic as to the reasons, right? I I don't think we know the reasons. I am concerned about inequality of all its various um, flavors—you know, wealth and health and education, you know, life outcomes generally.
0: What is the proper amount of equality? Because if, or what is the way of balancing equality and, and liberty?
1: It could be that perfect equality is. Is not only a, a fantasy, but not even a good fantasy, right? I mean, maybe we don't want perfect equality, right? Maybe there's some, maybe there's an argument to be had that that some amount of inequality is actually optimal, right? But there's clearly some amount that's not optimal, right? That you you don't want a a, a Gini coefficient that resembles you know, you know Sao Paulo, Brazil, right? You you don't you don't want to, no matter how wealthy and creative you are, and and you know how you know, artfully, you, you've curated your life. You don't want to have to live in a compound ringed with razor wire because there's so much crime on your streets. And you don't want to have to helicopter out of your compound to some safer place so that you can fly over all the chaos and mayhem and misery that is at your doorstep because you've taken absolutely no steps to spread the wealth around. Right. So I think what we, you know, even the most avid fan of Ayn Rand, you know, has to admit in their more reflective moments that they want to live in a society with you know, that's just brimming with happy creative people who are good collaborators right good customers good you know pe- people you don't have to fear because they're so uh, they've been driven psychotic with envy because there's been such a mismatch between the quality of your life and the quality of theirs, you know, and and perhaps more important, the quality of your children's lives and the quality of their children's lives, right? So um, we want to live in a a circumstance where there's real abundance and and the abundance has been spread around, right? So some form of redistribution has to be um, valid once you get too much of a concentration of wealth in, in t- which is to say too much in, you know wealth inequality in any society uh, and and we you know we wealthy people and we lucky people should understand the you know the pragmatism of all that if not just the actual ethics right well, you know if, if you can't feel compassion for people who are not as lucky as you are at least you could feel some you know wise sense of self-preservation that you just you know you you want to pay some kind of ransom, to th- these disparities in in luck right because eventually the pitchforks are coming and so so yeah i don't know what the right level of equality is but i just know we want we want all boats to continue to rise with each new tide right so we want like you know 50 years from now if the future is going to be better than the present we want it to be better for everybody even if it's not equally better for everybody Right. So I guess it's, it's, you know, you could say, for instance, that, you know, a middle class person in America now, whatever their, you know, unrealized hopes and dreams, they live better than, you know, virtually everyone, you know, in, in other countries and certainly everyone, they live better than anyone lived in the 18th century. Right. You know, even royalty. Right. We want progress uh, and we want progress to be shared. Um, and. Like so, so to wind back to how you started that question when you were talking about the people who are who want equal representation. It's like okay, it's okay, it's it's fine what you say about hair color. Maybe we'll get there someday. But what we need now is equal representation for skin color, and 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 sex. Say in all the desirable areas. Otherwise, it 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 is bigotry that has been expressed there. Well, it's just not true that bigotry is it need be the mechanism that's keeping people out you know it's just yeah, so to t- take take it off race for a second and just talk about sex right so there there are fields that attract men and women in different numbers right it's just it's not the, our our interests are not identical right and our the 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 requirements for putting in the hours at different stages in life are not identical right so there's it's not an accident that um, and people will worry about the um, representation of women in in physics say or engineering or computer science right and, and it looks low and that somehow looks fishy right there must be an old boys network keeping the girls out it's possible that there there is in certain departments or in, in certain periods of, of history that that's possible but it's extraordinarily unlikely to be the, to be true across the board. Certainly, given how proactive people have been in recent years in trying to encourage women to get into those areas, and then when you look at what's happening in adjacent fields where you have more women than men, I mean, there are more women than men in biology now, right? And I believe it's also true of psychology. I'm sure it's true of sociology. It, biology is a wonderful uh, domain of science, right? And and who's losing sleep over the lack of men in it, right? You know, it's like the fact that it's now it's something like 60 percent women. Um, or at least sixty percent girls majoring in it. Uh, last I looked, w- is that a disparity that that we need to worry about? You know, and how how disparate might like you know what's the percentage of female pediatricians to male pediatricians? I, I don't know, but I am guessing there is more women right now. If if there are more women, do I have to worry about that? Should anyone worry about that? And is is sexism the reason why guys are not making the cut? Somehow, you know, it's just that's not that's not happening, right? And and it's not um, so again. It's not to say that there's no sexism, sexism in the world, and the, or racism in the world that we need to worry about. But there are other explanations for many of these these disparities. And again, so getting rid of the sexists and the racists with a magic wand won't necessarily
0: necessarily change those those causal factors. You, you mentioned that you're agnostic as to the reasons. Do you think it's productive to be agnostic in the sense that, that one you could say, hey, it's unknowable, but two you could say it is knowable, but the, the truth would be just not constructive for society to know, and so it's it's helpful to have a an air of agnosticism because it wouldn't be an empowering. This is what Coleman and Charles Murray debated: is hey, even if one it's knowable, but even if it was knowable on a on a certain dimension, how is that empowering for a certain person, and thus. We should have this air of, you know, equality of opportunity. Of course, it's a myth in the sense that, you know, if you're richer than me, your your kids are going to be better off, and if you've, you're you're smarter than me, you're going to marry someone smarter, you know, smarter than me, and your kids will be better off. All these kinds of ways. Going back to your your lying book, I'm, I'm curious if certain myths are important for the societal fabric, or how how do you think about that?
1: Whatever the the nature of group differences. Uh, you know, if they exist and what, you know, and and if they're genetic or environmental or or some combination of the two, uh, they're never relevant for the individual. I'm the applicant for the next job I'm applying to, right? And it's, I I get no advantage knowing that I belong to certain groups that may be advantaged in certain ways statistically at the population level, right? So again, if in fact those differences are true, right? So I'm I'm half Ashkenazi Jew, and the Ashkenazi Jews supposedly have you know higher IQs on average than than many other groups. My IQ is what it is, right? So I guess I I don't I, I don't get to to draft my my Ashkenazi half brothers and half sisters and get some kind of advantage, for, you know, from the, the from the population level statistics. Uh, so. The ground truth is you always have to judge people as individuals, right? And, and that's that I think. So to taking that side of the, of the political debate, that is that is a kind of ethical punchline for me. That's a, we have to treat people as individuals, whatever's true. And when we're led to not want to do that, it's because we're lazy or we have not built the, the tools, the information tools that make it possible or easy to do that, right? So yeah, we have to treat people as ind- individuals and you know, this is something, you know, I got into hot water with you know, with the world after talking to Charles Murray on this topic. Uh, you know, it, it really is a thankless topic to touch, but I think we, we need to admit in advance that it's extraordinarily likely that there are group level population differences uh, that we will discover. Uh, which is to say, I mean, the flip side of that is it would be a miracle if every group were identical, that where, where its mean value of every measurable trait we cared about was identical to every other group's mean value for that trait. So take the hundred traits that we care most about, intelligence is just one, right? But you got the propensity to violence and you know, just, just anything, anything that could be socially positive or negative and... You know personally positive or negative we could say, well, whatever's measurable and whatever's not measurable now will one day be measurable presumably right so in the fullness of time we have these hundred things about human beings that we really care about that uh, redound to their advantage or disadvantage in, in in a way that is is just undeniable we start measuring all of these things for every different group what are the chances we're going to find that that uh, from a sample to a population, we just measure the whole population, right? We don't just take a hundred thousand Irishmen to judge what Irishmen are like. We, we actually measure every person in Ireland and, you know, who has Irish blood, right? So, you know, so, so what are the chances that the mean Irish intelligence is identical to every other group's mean intelligence across the globe, right? It, it, it would be a miracle if that were the case, right? So, I think and this is not to say anything especially invidious about Ireland or Irish people. I'm just picking them at random, but we just know that if we compared every group whether whether it's a valid group or not i mean you could you could you could just take how people self identify in bizarre ways. you could take you know Lakers fans against uh Pistons fans and i mean you could you could just you could any group right there's no way. All of these very vari- the mean value of all these variables is going to be the same for those groups so the so the question let 's price that in now, right What do we make of that? My point is we need make nothing of it because we know how our politics should be we know how, we know how we want to live. We know we want to treat people as individuals. we know we should treat people as individuals it 's both ethical and pragmatic um, We know that that knowing that a person is a member of any one of these groups gives us very little information about them, right? It, it, It doesn't tell us about their intelligence or their compassion or their interests or their, you know, gifts and weaknesses. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't. And so it just doesn't matter. And we're acting, not only are we acting like it matters, we're acting like, you know, again, this is on, this is a pathology of the left at the moment. We're acting like it is the most important thing uh, one's membership in these groups right and again not, not so much with respect to nationality but with respect to things like race and gender and gender identity it's it's a it's it's a moral illusion right and, and it's it's a it's a mirage toward which uh, we're hurtling you know we're being driven toward it by our politics and there's nothing there, right? It's, 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 it's no place to live. Caring more, a way to get over ra- racism and racial division in our country, and sexism and sex yeah, and division with respect to sex, and you know, a- add your other identities here, is not to care more and more about these things, right? It's to care less and less about these things. And so they're, they're, we're on the left, we're running the wrong algorithm.
0: I'm going to say some things that might be too simplistic so feel free to edit my characterization but my understanding is that on the left you're critiquing an ideology and on the right you're critiquing a person or a group of people who are you know corrupt um but w- will be changed and so it, people are defending the thing on the left the things we just spoke about with with kind of a religious fervor uh and, and some people believe that that form of progressivism is kind of a evolution of uh, a certain kind of protestantism that that dropped the metaphysics, dropped the God part, but kept the the moral commitment to uh, duty to the downtrodden or uh, equality, um, and and created new metaphysics, which is uh, hey our, the Ibram Kendi kind of school. And so my mental model, uh, if I was in a coma the last twenty years, I, I would have said, oh you know Sam Harris was one of the leaders of the new atheist movement, and he spoke against uh, religion, and and they you know contributed to uh, delegitimizing kind of religious, uh, religions, um, you know, handle over some cultural institutions. Uh, he might do the same thing with, with this new form of, of religion. And, and to be fair, and you just did it on this podcast, you, you certainly critique it, but it feels like it's not your central project and to the same degree that it was, you know, 20 years ago, even though you've, you've admitted that in some ways it's even more powerful, the, 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 you know, it's not leading people to be suicide bombers, but it does capture Almost every major institution today, um, and you know, introduce a form of scleroticism or, or you know, some negative impacts that that come from, that stem from that, and introduce kind of you know reciprocal problems on, on on the on the right in the form of white identity, as as you described. And so when I ask myself why why isn't Sam doing it to the same degree, and maybe I'm wrong in that characterization, I say, oh, it's because the right is equally scary, but it, it's around a few set of individuals, and in a different way. And in five years, that that will be, or maybe even sooner. That, that will no longer be be a problem, but that ideology will remain and so I wonder if if that will be a new essential project of yours
1: well well i'm not I'm not sure it's just a matter of the individuals on the right I mean there are there is dogmatism on the right that is to which many of these individuals are anchored um, and also right and left doesn't quite capture our politics at the moment I mean so there's a there's a way in which the right and the left have um, joined forces in in certain ways, I mean, spe- especially among people who are you know, "quote" too online. Uh, there's a just there's a there's an anti-establishment uh, style of of uh, responding to everything now, where you know the the alternate explanation for you know, any phenomenon is the preferred one, right? So it's this is something you you get from podcasts and newsletters, and it's um, you know it's the water in which we're swimming now but it's it's a kind of you know, at some point i called it a a new religion of contrarianism right and and that it does cut across both the left and the right or or the you know, the horseshoe theory does sort of get born out here because you have people like you know tucker carlson and glenn greenwald becoming best friends right and and it's uh you know that's weird and and, and inexplicable but for certain shared uh points of fixation which is the you you, ha- you have to distrust the power of the american government you have to distrust the power of the establishment you have to distrust the mainstream media uh, that you know they, they are lying to you right the they there's a there's a there's an elevation of the they in both these camps which unifies their vision of 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 them you know, the the malign uh, and sinister forces that are working behind the scenes to distort everything. And you know, so we, we, get a, we get a pandemic and many, many millions of people, whether they're on the far right or the far left, uh, begin to worry that every response to this pandemic, from masking to vaccines is motivated not by you know, by equal parts ignorance of what's going on, plus a concern to mitigate illness and death, uh, it is rather just this—the the first uh, move in an Orwellian effort to control people. Right? It's just this is the 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 pandemic, right? This is this is something this is coming from from Davos, right? This is a this is globalism uh, uh, run amok and. You know, pretty soon UN troops are going to be in your town, t- telling you, you you have to stay in your houses, right? Like that—that's the, you know, so that you have this—you have people who, again, you know, f- who are like far left anti-vax yoga moms, you know, who, and then far right Second Amendment gun nuts, like the same switch in their brain got flipped during COVID, right? And they were unified on, you know, the the contrarianism above all uh, principle. And so I, there's, there's, there's a lot, you know, again, some of that's understandable. And, you know, the, our institutions certainly didn't cover themselves in glory in how they handled the pandemic, much less the messaging around uh, public health there. But it's pretty clear we need functional institutions, right? We're not going to navigate all of our collective... Social problems and you know within nations and between nations by podcast and Substack newsletter. We need we need institutions that are that are viable and that we trust, and that we are right to trust. Right? Yes. We we want we don't want to trust institutions that we shouldn't trust. We want trustworthy institutions. We want real experts, not fake experts. Right? But there is. But that's just to say there there really is such a thing as expertise, and there really is such a thing as a good institution that has. You know, real knowledge uh, that needs to be preserved, and uh, just tear it all down, and just disrupt everything, and just move fast and break things, uh, is not a method of improving our institutions and and safeguarding them against error. Right? It's just it's just not. And so, so much of what's happening online at the level of our politics. Is a um. It's a very it's just an ill-considered reaction to, you know, everything everyone didn't like about you know what's happened in the last few years, but it's so um, it's so shot through again with misinformation and disinformation that it's it's, I mean, it it is just a, a kind of new religion of of delusion and paranoia and and strangely you know narcissism right because you know all of these conspiracy theories are uh really energizing to people because it puts them at the center of the action right it's and, and it's uh you know you and there's no there's no one to you to defer to you gotta you know no you have to do your own research right you can figure it out you you should figure out what happened on 9-11 right it's not what it seemed right those we were you know it, it's just al-qaeda wasn't involved this is you know do you know the melting point of steel and when's the last time you read an article about thermite right so like get that get down in there and uh get your hands dirty right now and, and and when you're done with that do it with mrna vaccines too
0: right yeah exactly i mean it, it's really interesting because in some ways yeah, I, I don't i don't mean to employ a triggering name here but on this topic, not on the topics we were talking about before, but you seem closer to like a Matt Iglesias or Ezra Klein type than like a Eric Weinstein uh, type, who maybe you were closer to, uh, you know, uh, sort of mood affiliation wise a few years ago. Do you agree with that? Characters, maybe those are the wrong names, but you kind of get what what I'm getting at. H- how do you how do you make sense of that transformation? Or
1: I mean, there's no love lost between me and Ezra Klein, as you know, and and uh, I, I haven't. I'm not aware of having interacted with Iglesias, but I I feel like there's, there must be some history there that I'm, that I'm unaware of. What I share with them, I'm taking your account of, of Iglesias more because I haven't haven't really read him, uh, in living memory. But, um, I mean, with Klein, yeah, I, I think we're, we have more of a default respect for institutions. And, you know, if, in my case even when i'm noticing their failures uh and you know I'm, f- I'm not i'm feeling something less than respect i what i'm feeling is is concern for the failure of institutions right like i we, i know we need institutions i know we need a government we can trust when the wheels are coming off right when we have a pandemic right and someone gets on television and says listen if you don't stay inside, our hospitals, are, our whole hospital system is going to fail, right? So you got to stay inside for the next two weeks. I know we want a, a, a government that is trustworthy in a moment like that. And I know we want a society that trusts the government in a moment like that, right? Uh, we, don't want, we don't want delusional people in charge. And we don't want a, a nation of, of uh, misinformation, addled hysterics, you know, freaking out at moments like that and so it is when we declare war on another society or another society declares war on us right like or so or so it is when in a moment of you know like 9 eleven where we have this this you know horrific act of terrorism and we don't know who to bomb right we need to trust institutions we need to we need so like when the when the mid the middle east expert gets on television and says yeah well here's here's what's going on in Iran right now and here's what's going on in Iraq and here's a we want those people to actually know something, right? We we can't call bullshit on everyone all the time in all directions, and function, right? So, I mean, I, it seems like it's such an uncontroversial thing to say. I, I would think everyone would agree, but there are people who are acting as though they effectively disagree with that statement, and that there is no such thing as expertise, and there is no such thing such thing as as valid institutional knowledge and science journals are just like blogs you know it's it's all just monkeys at typewriters you know go fuck yourself right that's people are living like that is that is it seems to be the software people have running on on their brains now by the the tens of millions in our in our society Uh, i get how they're they got many people got pushed there i get how it's tempting to declare epistemological and ethical and political bankruptcy on some level. You know, it's just like, oh, I can't, it's just, no, they're all assholes. Everyone's in it for themselves. You can't trust anybody. You know, prosecute Fauci, right? Like it's just, everyone's as bad as everyone else. And maybe Putin's not that bad. Now that I think about it, maybe Putin's just, he's better than, than some of these people. You know, at least he's got a sense of order, right? right uh go putin you know like who who should win between Ukraine and Russia? Oh, I don't know, you know I mean, it's like that's where so many people are, and, you know, even a fair number of billionaires you know who are seem inclined to stick both their feet in their mouths on on a, any one of these topics we so yeah i'm I'm not in that tribe, right I think we need i think I think there are grown ups and we need the grown ups in the room at least some of the time.
0: I can't think of a certain name of someone who you'd really respect that is a critic of these institutions, because I think I think what they would say, the smartest versions of them would say, yeah, we just need better people, and running, we, we do need institutions, we just need better people running these institutions, and these institutions are dysfunctional uh, for a number of different reasons. One of the- which is maybe they've been selected for loyalty to a certain tribe than actual competency, or. Uh, whether it's universities, they've become a cartel, or for for whatever reason, they've just demonstrated over the last few years or decades their incompetence, and we we need real change.
1: Just to be clear, I totally agree with that, and but the solution to those problems is not to just tear it all down, and and the solution, I mean, at a minimum, the solution is to build new institutions. When you maximize contrarianism and you maximize you maximize conspiracy thinking and you maximize do your own research, you don't get new institutions that are even better than the old ones that that became sclerotic and badly incentivized and captured and um, you know too woke or too something right. You don't. You just get another podcast. You just get another you know another grift. You just get another. Uh, and I say this is I mean, obviously, I, you know, I'm a full-time podcaster. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on, po- on the podcasting game. I'm just saying it's not enough, right? We need, we need Harvard to be Harvard and not some woke church, right? We need, we need a, a journal like Science and Nature to be the, still be the best organ of of scientific communication, right? And not something that looks like it was written by a dei admin right and that's that's what we're getting so so i, I st- all the people who are freaking out about that uh i get it right i you know i have whenever i decide to uh think about it i freak out too but it, it's just what is the answer and the answer is not it's not to give up one's standards, right? It's it's, it's but the, the the one the standards one has are implicit in that initial reaction, right? When you see that a I mean to, to take the example that that it crystallized this for many people in the aftermath of George Floyd, when you had epidemiologists, you know, vilifying protesters on the right for gathering in public and, because it was just this this completely irresponsible behavior that was there, they're unmasked and they're very likely to spread COVID even though they're outside. And this is, this is just intolerable and this has to be criticized and uh, there's no excuse for it. And then when the, when the political moment flipped and you had all of the Black Lives Matter protests at a much greater scale and just you know, much greater epidemiological implications if in fact there were any, you know it turns out there probably weren't many, but we didn't know that. Yet you have like open letters. I think the one open letter signed by something like a thousand public health officials and or epidemiologists, saying that yeah, this is this is now justified because racism is even a bigger, you know, public health concern, right? So, and that was so fatuous and so it just obviously a distortion of of scientific thinking and, and and public health information. And there were many other examples of that sort of thing. That yeah, people just just went on tilt there they said all right okay this is this is a total betrayal of intellectual principles but you know rewind to the moment when you recognized it as a betrayal of intellectual principles okay let's enshrine those principles let's let's get back to institutions and professional behavior that acknowledges facts right regardless of political expediency and So there still are standards, even the, even the tear it all down bunch were motivated by their, their implicit acknowledgement of standards, at least in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, now there's just, there's, there's just, there's an appetite for, it's like, it's like every story is like the, you know, did Epstein kill himself story? Like everything has this sort of tawdry other explanation like like, to shine the light in some into the fourth dimension on this on this one you know because it's it's possible um and what i'm saying is that that's just that's a that's a that's a character trait that many people have that's getting amplified and selected for in the current media environment and and amply rewarded i'm sure by audience capture in in many channels Uh, and it's it's a dis- dysfunctional one. I'm not saying consp- I'm not saying no one ever conspires. I'm not saying no conspiracy theories are true. And of course, if you're a conspiracy theorist who always is is going down every rabbit hole in defiance of of common sense, you will be the first to to alight upon the 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 next conspiracy that is valid, right? You know, if you know, if it turns out that JFK was assassinated by the CIA and we find that out next week, well, okay, everyone who spent, devoted their lives to that is going to feel vindicated. But they're not going to be vindicated on the hundred other things they devoted their lives to that, that was just nonsense.
0: So I should recharacterize you, you have ideological problems or quibbles with both the left and the right. The, the left for the kind of group rights at the expense of individual rights. And the right, it's not just you quibble with a few people who are immensely corrupt, but you quibble with populism. This, this idea uh um, or this you know which which is an overarching arching ideology
1: i mean it's also it, there are a lot of demons lurking if you push far enough rightward you, you you run into fascism you run into and and you don't have to look that far to find fascist sympathies even in mainstream people on the right i mean again i i referenced an open mindedness about the integrity of vladimir putin right it's like that that it's amazing how many Republicans will, who will pretend to be uncertain about what an awful human being he is and how that matters. Right. I mean, we, here, we have somebody who's just like literally assassinating uh, dissidents and political rivals in the capitals of Europe. Right. And killing journalists. And I mean, it's just, and you just, you know, invaded a, a, a sovereign nation for no good reason, whatever his his thoughts about it. I mean, he's like he was the aggressor in the in the war in Ukraine, right? It's, so it's just whatever the failings of of Ukrainian, the Ukrainian government might be. Um, we know who started it, and uh, and we know who could stop it, and we know who's who's fighting for their lives, right? So um, the idea that that it is it's is a fairly mainstream position among Republicans now that. It's um, whatever you think about the level of support we should be giving, there's still there's a fondness for Putin that gets expressed, right? And that's, yeah, I mean, that, there are not too many steps between that and wanting to
0: live under a Putin like figure. Maybe I'm too charitable, but Brian Kaplan has this line he says the left hates markets because markets lead to inequality, and the right just hates the left. I, I do agree, at least with the latter part. in in the sense that I guess my charitable view is that the left was pro Ukraine and the right just anti whatever the the left is excited about. But I I don't mean to dismiss the, you know, how concerning those, those uh, sympathies with with Putin are. But going back to the institutional point, it's interesting because smart tech people, they they want valid institutions too. And there are two models, you can either retake them, or you could start start new ones. And my uh, our, my friend Balaji, uh is much more in the camp of you need to start new ones, going back to even things you need to start new countries. <laughs> and where I've been pushing back a little bit is say what you want about the outcome. I think Elon Musk proved that you could actually take a massive institution that was operating one way and change it significantly. Say, say what you want about, about those changes, but it was proof that that's an institution that could be taken. Now, not everybody has $44 billion lying around. You're talking about Twitter? Yes, yes, with Twitter that's one example say what you want about about of institutional reform just showing that it's possible because a lot of people in tech will say hey these institutions are too far gone that that's why and uh, you need to start new ones but you you're not going to start a new government like they're, they're, they're you know in, in like some institutions are so cemented that you just need to win them over some if it's a corporation maybe you can do it elon did others you need to run and you know get elected and things like that but i'm, I'm you know mark Andreessen, recognizes the need for important institutions uh, for smart people in those institutions you know he believes in expertise I think w- w- you know he's someone you, you respect as a smart person. W- where do you think uh, the crux of your of where you guys see things differently is if you had to say?
1: Well I mean Elon is is very much his own creature I mean he's you know it's his the thing I object to and what he's doing now is not how he's changed Twitter as an institution. Uh, or as a platform, but just how he behaves on the platform. You've got 130 million people following you, and you tweet that your, your your former head of trust and safety is a pedophile, right? On the basis of no evidence, and you know with predictable results, right? Then he just he he and his family get their lives totally disrupted by that in in uh, terribly unpleasant ways. And you take no responsibility for having done that, right? And so you know, or you tweet that um, you tweet a link to a a trash article from a trash website, alleging that Paul Pelosi was attacked not by a maniac with a hammer, but by a you know his gay lover who you know, who, and so this is a a, a tryst gone awry and. Not at all what it seems, right? And this is with a conspiracy theory that was blowing up in, in you know, on the QAnon front of the right. And then when it gets revealed that that website you linked to, again, in front of 100, it's probably 110 million people at that point, you know, that's a website that published that that Hillary Clinton was dead and a body double was campaigning in her place back in 2016, right? Um, what you do is you just delete the tweet and you you, you offer no apology, no correction, no nothing right you just take no responsibility because that that's bad for the world right and i would argue it's bad for elon it's bad for his brand it's bad for his reputation it's bad for his relationships it's just bad you know and so why do it so that that's the that's a there's a kind of adolescent engagement with real issues that is is troubling there right it's like it's all for the lulls right it's like i can say whatever i want it's just it's just twitter right we're just shit posting it's just it's all pepe the frog right it's like the the spirit of pepe the frog as it's kind of moved into tech and into the brains of some very wealthy connected people is bad for the world right it's it's not to say it's never funny right it's like it is you know you know memes are funny i don't know what it is i mean there's like a a neuro atypical obliviousness to the the ethical costs of behaving certain ways that uh, I really worry about right and it may be calling it neuroatypical is is the wrong framing but I wouldn't be surprised if that were part of the story in many cases right I mean there there are some very smart people who are doing very interesting things who to my eye do not have their heads screwed on straight ethically and and uh, with respect to their how they engage problems of real social consequence and you know, and Elon is is the the paradigmatic case of that at the moment. But you know, obviously, I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for for what he's built, and I mean, he's you know, there's no, it's it's almost impossible to exaggerate how in, you know, interesting and and productive those projects have been. You know, on other fronts, it's just it gives him should give him all the more reason not to screw it up, wasting his time, shit posting you know, about real problems, uh, you know, uh, on Twitter. I mean, I, so like with, with Mark, I mean, Mark's been on my podcast. I think, I think Mark is is more pessimistic, perhaps even cynical with respect to the possibility of fixing certain problems. It's not to say he's wrong. He may be right. He may be better informed about what it would take to fix some of these institutions than, than I am. You know, I, this just, it would just be interesting to debate um, and it would be probably a case by case. Uh, a question of you know what is true case by case, but again, with someone like Mark, you know the 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 allergy to the wo- to the derangement of the left and the the, the moral panic of identitarian uh, politics on the left. I mean, that is so front and center, and and I completely share it. Right, like I just I hate what has happened uh, to mainstream institutions under the the ages of of wokeness. I got. I have to think the pendulum is swinging back now, and it's it's not as bad now as it was yesterday. I mean, I, I really do feel like that's we, we we reached some kind of tipping point. But you know, I, again, I'm not sure, but I do see some signs of that. One of the pathologies uh, of the right and or the the libertarian variant of the right um, is uh, it's a kind of a, it's a lack of compassion for the the disparities in luck I spoke about earlier, which which lead to inequality in all its forms, right? It's just the the myth of the self-made man is such colossal bullshit and it does so much work. It does so much pseudo-ethical work for people right of center, right? It's a, It's a total fiction. No one made themselves. No one picked their parents. No one can account for how they were lucky enough to be born where they were and who they were so that they succeeded, right? And, and, and whatever story they have about being self-made, they didn't, they're not responsible for their intelligence, right? The fact that you weren't born with brain damage is pure luck. And somebody is being born with brain damage right now in a hospital near you. So what do we do for that person, right? So it's just, it's a total failure, not of just compassion, of just you know, basic awareness of, of terrestrial facts, to, to feel that something important is anchored to this myth of the self-made person, right? So if you're self-made or, or not, you know, whatever your, whatever your story about how you succeeded, if you've succeeded, if you're, you know, happily married and you've got a lot of great friends and you're healthy and you're living in a great house in a great city, and you've never been the victim of anything, especially horrible. And, um, you just are living a beautiful, creative life and you've, you've got, uh, you know, as many zeros as you want after, you know, uh, the first digit of your, your net worth, you're incredibly lucky, right? I mean, there's just, you are, you won the fucking lottery, right? So, and, and so what you should feel, the only appropriate emotions to feel after you, you take stock of your situation are gratitude and compassion, you know, gratitude for all that you're enjoying uh, given the the odds stacked against it and compassion for everyone else who's nowhere near where you are right who would who would consider their their prayers answered if they could be you on your worst day right the worst day you've ever had there are billions of those people across the globe and so the project for us collectively is to remedy those disparities to some degree i'm not saying that we all have to we we don't we all have to become poor in order to help the poor right i'm not i'm not you know i I don't even think even if that were ethically true even if that that was the right answer ethically uh, pragmatically i think it it is almost certainly not the right answer and therefore you know it would the ethics of it would unravel right it's like it's 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 not that we 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 want Thriving cities in the first world, where everything is very expensive, you know, because it it costs a lot of money to to do new and interesting things, right? We we want to, you know, I I share the the aspiration that you know the, the future should be inconceivably better than the past, right? And that's going to take a lot of hard work, that's going to cost a lot of money, and we need to, we need to power all of that with clean energy and you know, let's, 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 let's make all of the innovations that Elon and every other techie wants to make, right? As you go right of center, there is a palpable detachment from the ethics. And, you know, in the limit, you have a lot of rich people just with their bug out bags, you know, the, and inside your bug out bag might be a compound in New Zealand, right? Where you're, you know that the the final game theoretic problem you're you're mulling over is how you can keep your your bodyguards from killing you and taking your stuff and you know raping your wife, right? It's like like how do you protect yourself from your the, the people you've hired to protect you when everything falls apart, right? That's that's what you're going to start reading books about now, really. Both the left and the right are fairly crazy in the way they've been anchored, and you know. And again, left and right don't fully capture the the dimensionality of our of our situation. Now,
0: gearing towards closing here, then I'd maybe offer one uh, alternative theory of polarization I've heard, which is, while on an individual level it is uh, it is corrupting, and you know you might be better off off Twitter. The alternative of no polarization means that one side won. If you believe that there is really a fundamental conflict, and what polarization means is that. These two forces are competing with each other and maybe balancing each other out and and that would also be a, a steel man as to m- one positive thing Elon has done is he has revived sort of uh you know more conversation on on the right perhaps but all these people that were banned now Twitter is a cesspool it's it's a civil war um but the alternative is a one party state do you do you sympathize with any of that or not really
1: well i I just don't think that the solution could possibly be a balancing act between two totally dysfunctional political religions, right? It's like it's like it's, it, we, we have the we have the Catholics and the Protestants, you know successfully uh, at a stalemate, right but both are insane, right? Both believe you know, pure fictions that are divisive and so it's, 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 it's just I, I think the solution space, is elsewhere which is we would navigate to it on the basis of some of the principles already already discussed which is to to acknowledge the reality of luck right to to acknowledge the, the the real disparities in our world but also to acknowledge that we have to treat people as individuals right and and to acknowledge that the so often we're faced with not one clear right answer but we're we're faced with trade-offs right it's like they're they're mutual incompatible goods or mutual incompatible lesser evils in various situations uh and we have to navigate we have to to one or the other you know they're mutually exclusive they we have you know if you're if you're going to make a left turn you're not making a right turn you know and and so i mean we just have to be realistic about the situation we're in yeah i i feel like we we have to find ourselves into a in a spot where we acknowledge that we're on the same team with respect certainly with respect to the biggest problems right so we take a global pandemic right like that is you know that's the equivalent of you know being attacked by you know aliens from outer space like like humanity needs to unite at a moment like that right we can't be fighting over ppe and and clearly we need there there clearly there are global problems that we confront or, or will one day confront which demand a global solution a coordinated global solution and we it's pretty clear we do not yet have the political and and economic and legal tools to effortlessly accomplish that right I mean we're just we're stuck and we, we want we need to get unstuck in in light of the, the those persistent threats i mean it's just, again there's going to be another pandemic and and eventually there'll be a pandemic that will be way worse than covid right i mean i view covid not as the worst thing that's ever happened but uh a dress rehearsal for the worst thing that may ever happen and it will one day happen and we and we screwed up the dress rehearsal i mean we, we really screwed it up and i'm not even sure we've learned any indelible lessons on the basis of our screw-ups i i don't know this i, I hope this is not true at the level of the the institutions that will you know that we have now and that we will have then but i feel like on some level you know we're even less sure about what to do in the face of the next pandemic it's just it's it's uh it, it was so um you know the res- the response to the response has been so divisive and crazy making uh, that it's um yeah i i don't know. it'll be interesting to see how it shakes down but in any case we need to solve these coordination problems. And it's not just, balancing between maniacs is not going to be the, the jig we do that, that accomplishes that. I mean, we, we need a, uh, we're, we need, we're preparing for, for like the, you know, the pandemic Olympics, right? And we can't just have a bunch of out of shape people uh, who've been preparing for something completely, a different, a completely different event you know, just, you know, but in opposite ways, you know, they're not going to coordinate their mutual antagonism to one another in such a way as to get us, you know, through the, the hundred yard dash in record time or whatever it is. You know, it's just not, um, we, we need a different set of tools.
0: And another, I mean, central disagreement that is happening and only to happen more and more, it seems, as we have these global problems is one group of people believes we need a global governance um, and it needs to be effective, but that's, that's what's needed. And another group of people says, Hey, this is inherently, you know, it, it's too big of a risk factor to have a global government and we need more factions such that we don't centralize, you know, have, uh, just one centralized org that can cause a lot of damage. Um, and we need to balance out power.
1: Yeah. And also a single point of failure. And I, well, so there's, there's something to that. And I think there's, I mean, so so one argument in favor of of decentralization is that we can we can run a hundred experiments simultaneously and see what works or what or what works better than than you know other approaches. But it 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 just seems obvious that there in the limit there there are certain problems that we're only going to solve globally. You know, like like climate change. You know, it's like if, if, even if we put if we Americans put our house in order totally. Which would be great it's not going to mean much if China and India and every other country just goes back to the nineteenth century. How do we do that? yeah and i I understand the the fear of you know the the consolidation of power because there's so many examples of you know bad people and bad regimes misusing that power right but but we need. And it may be that many of the solutions are centralized, but not political, right? Maybe, maybe it's technological, you know, maybe, but again, people are worried about big tech also abusing its, its power, right? Or getting captured by, by political ideologies. And again, that's, that's a real worry, but it's pretty clear that we need a pharmaceutical, just take one piece of this. We need a pharmaceutical industry that we can trust right? Globally. Right. And we don't have it. We don't have it for name brand pharmaceuticals. We don't have it for generics. We have, you know, we have fake drugs and, and Frank poisons getting, you know, put in pill form. You know, I mean, there was some, there was, I think it was a Catherine Ebon article in Vanity Fair a few years back. And, and Peter Atiyah did a podcast with her soon after that, just talking about the fact that something like 40% of our generic drugs aren't what they say they are, right? They're like, either have none or only part, you know, you know, none of the molecule advertised or, you know, or that molecule, you know, riddled with contaminants, right? How is it that we're living in a world, I mean, just to, to take, let's take the, the selfish first world parochial attitude about this. Like, how is, how is it that in America, we're reliant on bogus Indian labs, producing generic drugs that we can't trust right i mean we're we're, you may have heard this but it it was reported in the last 24 hours that we're rationing cancer drugs in the u.s because we just can't get enough of them like we just we name both name brand and generic right like well we're not producing them because again we're totally reliant on india and china and you know if not for the drugs themselves the precursors how do we how do we get ourselves into that situation you know it's it's totally untenable even if you're just going to pull up the the drawbridge and say, you know, fuck the world. It's all about you know, America first. You know, I don't, we don't care. Right. We can't supply as of today, we can't supply our own pharmaceuticals in a way that anyone should trust. Right. That's complete. That's totally shameful. But what is the remedy for that? Right. The remedy is to really drill down on every aspect of that problem and, and, incentivize institutions so that they effortlessly have more and more integrity right i mean so yeah so there's there's a lot to think through here it's like it could be that capitalism falters on specific fronts right i think i think medicine is is uh, a very likely candidate for this like the the profit motive in drug design and in the distribution of, of of pharmaceuticals, is something that it may be intrinsically corrupting of the whole enterprise, and it may be something that we we can never trust, right? I mean, like the fact that you have CEOs of pharmaceutical companies thinking about the bottom line in the same way that CEOs of entertainment companies think about the bottom line—that doesn't map very well well onto the human suffering that is the target of all of those molecules, right? It's just like, we may, you know, again, I'm not, I I think, you know, capitalism is is the only answer we've got to how to run an economy, but there could be exceptions and this might be one. I mean, maybe we, you know, maybe 20 years from now we'll realize, you know, actually this should just be a line item for the, the government and the government should be in the drug design business And and, or at least create a guaranteed market for all these drugs. And it's not a matter like we're just going to pour enough money into this that we'll we'll be we'll be creating everything and designing everything and and innovating in all the ways we want. But nobody's getting rich. And it's just not they're not going to get quite a you know, they're going to get rich differently. Again, you have to figure out how to attract the talent and how to get someone to decide they don't want to work for Goldman Sachs. They want to work for for this uh, good cause but again i just i just think we, the, all of these problems are, have to be solvable uh without us totally balkanizing into you know just basically alex jones's universe right i mean that's that's the thing that i'm i'm most worried about we're just uh, people have so much time for frank delusion uh because it's entertaining because it's because you know our our mainstream organs of information have have obviously failed us and and been somewhat corrupted by ideologies. Uh, so okay, Fox News is just as good as any other you know it's the New York Times, right? It never was the New York Times. It never aspired to be the New York Times, right? and it's it's you're not we're not this is an asymmetric allocation of outrage, right? The people who are outraged over the New York Times, are watching fox news as though it's news right the, the new york times is it has only suffered reputational harm by comparison with prior versions of itself and its own self proclaimed expectations for itself by fo- the standards of fox news you know the new york times is perfect and and always was and always will be right so it's just you have to calibrate your outrage machine and and acknowledge the real differences that still exist, even when everyone is behaving badly.
0: Oh, I think this is a good place to, to wrap. Also, I, I like the note you had earlier where you said, you know, the answer can't just be two political parties gone insane, just duking it out. That's a recipe for not solving the competence problems that we have uh, at major, you know, Levels of our institutions across across the country. You just mentioned the most recent one um, with, uh, or most recently mentioned in in healthcare and and in drugs, in um, pharmaceuticals. And um, deradicalization is is crucial to being able to be more sober and um, resist these ideologies or religions that seem to be so attractive to to us. And I see your podcast um, and the podcast ecosystem, or, or a number of them, as contributing to that deradicalization. By uh, helping rewire some of the trigger points um, on both sides, even if it earns you a lot of critics in the in, in the process, and uh, you know it may not be much, but it's honest work. Uh, and I've uh, I've been a long time uh, fan and appreciator and listener, so I'm uh, I'm grateful for you uh, uh, coming onto this podcast and having a great conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, welcome to the podcast game. <laughs> best of, best of luck with it.
0: Upstream with Eric Tornberg is a show from Turpentine, the podcast network behind Moment of Zen and Cognitive Revolution. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple store. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. Get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months. I believe in SecureFrame so much that I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo and mention upstream during your demo to get 20% off your first year. Now, more than ever, startup founders need a safe place to put their cash. Mercury protects your money and also provides the streamlined user experience that great founders expect. Through partner banks and their sweep networks, Mercury offers up to 5 million in FDIC insurance, which is 20 times the per bank limit. They also make it easy to invest any cash above the FDIC insured amount in a money market fund. 100,000 startups trust Mercury with their finances. I've been a happy Mercury customer and have found their team incredibly helpful and responsive. They even got an important wire out of purgatory on Christmas Eve. After all, your Christmas is my opportunity. Visit mercury.com to get started. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and involve Bank and Trust members, FDIC. Marketer Hire is one of my favorite resources for growing startups looking to hire marketers. Hiring is hard and the time it takes from founders can be better leveraged elsewhere. Marketer Hire pre-vets top-notch marketers across a dozen roles. Whether you need help with growth marketing, SEO, lifecycle, content, or any other aspect of growth marketing strategy, it's free to use and you only pay if you end up hiring someone. If you wanna hire a great marketer the easy way, Marketer Hire is offering upstream listeners a $1,000 credit for first-time customers. Go to marketerhire.com slash upstream and use code upstream to get your $1,000 credit. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, To shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co. And let's partner together.